Hi, thanks for stopping by and welcome. This is uh, Josh from Dormapunks, New York. Welcome, and I'm glad to see you all. I'm trying to think of announcements. Well, uh, as always, Monday through Fridays, you can join Kathy on the morning meditation daily pause at 8 a.m. Eastern, and it's a great way to start your day if you are a morning person. We'll have our next in-person gathering the first Tuesday of October. So if you're around New York, join us at Grand Street Healing. If you'd like to support my work, I do everything by donation only. I don't charge for anything I do. So um, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. The website not only holds announcements for our upcoming events, but it has the PayPal link, and it also has the Patreon link if you'd like to support my work that way. Any donation is warmly received as it's what keeps me able to do this. So I thank you for your support. And tonight we're talking about distress tolerance. So without further ado, there was a fascinating study by addiction psychologist Marcel Von Miller, who studied individuals with substance dependence. And he was interested in determining why certain people succeed in achieving uh, meaningful lengths of abstinence while others very quickly relapse. And the answer was different degrees of distress tolerance was the significant or salient factor in determining which people would maintain sobriety and which ones would become overwhelmed by withdrawal symptoms and relapse. 63% would relapse within days of quitting, whereas those who could self-soothe during the periods of discomfort, only 32% would relapse. So that's a huge difference. Anyone who's worked in any degree of therapeutic support for people addressing reliances on multiple substances know that the greater one's ability to withstand the discomfort of distress, the greater our eventual well-being and the likelihood of growth. Distress tolerance in general is our ability to manage emotionally impactful situations associated with anxiety, loneliness, anger, abandonment, without choosing self-sabotaging escapes, the discomfort for some, that substance abuse. For others, that could be trying to regulate their distress by reaching out continuously to emotionally unavailable people. But for many, the single most salient or most overused and maladaptive approach to trying to regulate distress in life is avoidance coping. We will avoid any situations associated with distressing feeling. If so, we'll cancel social plans, doctor's appointments, travel, anything associated with heightened degrees of charged emotions. Um, so we essentially avoid difficult stimuli, for instance, a friend that we're having tension with or someone that we've had a romantic relationship that has broken off. But we don't only just avoid the specific stressor, which is the 
person or the place associated with a traumatic event, but we also begin to avoid anything that reminds us of that painful event. You know, in the aftermath of a relationship, a breakup, somebody might not just avoid their ex, they might avoid any neighborhood or any establishment that in any ways associate with their ex. They might avoid friends that they associate with their ex. They might avoid doing things that they associate with their ex. When people get fired from jobs, they might not not only go to their workplace again, but they might avoid the entire neighborhood. They might avoid anything that reminds them of their own job, including looking at any products or things associated with their old work. Avoidance coping is unhealthy as it exacerbates, it worsens the emotional distress without in any way helping us address what's causing the difficult emotion. The basal lateral amygdala is in charge of fear learning in the brain. And the basal lateral amygdala works by associative learning. It doesn't only become afraid of the specific things that have caused us stress or anything that reminds us or we associate with that thing becomes triggering, difficult. A couple of things that happen when we are in distress is we get locked in default mode operation of the brain, which is the ventral medial hub where we wind up ruminating on grievances, catastrophizing thoughts, and very often rehearsing possibly conflictual interactions with other people, rehearsing what they would say, what we would say, and then what we would say in response, and then what they would say in response, all of which is re-triggering our amygdala, which frankly responds to internal images and internal thoughts just as much as it will, it can respond to actual real life events outside. So the idea that uh, rehearsing uh, for conflicts builds a sense of preparedness uh, actually is very often and does the exact opposite. It makes us feel more vulnerable and more stressed and we feel more anxious and more uh, overwhelmed. Procrastination. If we're faced with a task that is associated with painful emotions from the past, like for instance, some people associate doing their taxes with a sense of shame about their finances and their how they spend money, they'll avoid doing it. And studies show the more that we avoid doing a task, the more we think about the task that we're actually not doing. So guess what? Every time we avoid something, we wind up thinking about it more and we wind up triggering more distress. All of this is very similar to our aligns very neatly with the Buddha's core teachings, which is that our default strategy to cope with stress, or what he called dukkha, is to seek immediate relief, no matter how short-term or temporary. And so we either avoid or we seek out short-term numbing practices, short-term pleasures, and so forth. All of this keeps us from living our lives in accordance with our core values of growth, courage, exploration, and curiosity. 
But the talk on core values is going to be for another talk, probably next week. The Buddha notes that the avoidance is what makes the distress unbearable. That's going to cause you suffering. Some psychologists even note that it's due partially to the conveniences and security of contemporary life that our resilience to distress has weakened. We can find being in a waiting room at a dentist's office without a Wi-Fi signal distressing. (laughs) I know this because I was not so long ago in a dentist's office and there was no signal and the person sitting nearby was uh, nearly having a meltdown about it. (laughs) For some people, running out of coffee in the morning rather than have nervous systems that can handle the uptick of somatic distress, the raise in heart rate, the sense of stomach muscles contracting, the sense of clamminess, muscles becoming tense, the sense of jumpy attention, the uh, quickening of our inhalations and so forth. Uh, Building one's resiliency by active engagement with difficult situations is an effective coping strategy. And almost all of distress tolerance tools are aimed at creating a titrated environment, which means we're not rushing in to face distressing situations, but we're not avoiding them either. We're using tools to help reduce the distress how we can change controllable aspects of a difficult situation. We're taking small steps. We're finding ways to improve the tense situation in our life. In general, I'd like to note, and I don't know how to say this uh, eloquently, but stress, one's heartbeat raising, one's stomach muscles tightening, the feeling of being overwhelmed or vulnerable is akin to an alert system, not a warning system. A warning system is something that is meant to tell us to stop and go back, but that's not what stress in the human system is meant to do. Stress in the human nervous system very often means pay attention, proceed slowly. It's a readiness. It's not saying stop, I can't deal with this. Stress very often is simply saying your body is becoming ready for the expectation or anticipation of something difficult. If you have any distress tolerance tools in place, you can manage the degree of physiological distress and emotional distress in a way that you won't get anywhere near the dizziness and the lightheadedness and the feeling that you're going to collapse or anything like that. So distress tolerance skills are the mechanics of, I guess we we would call mechanics of tolerating discomfort. And the concept was developed by Marsha Linehan, for, who was the founder of dialectical behavioral therapy. And if you don't know, that was a form of therapy that was created pretty specifically at first for individuals with borderline personality disorder. But even though it was developed for individuals with borderline personality disorder, distress tolerance tools are widely applicable to everyone. 
I would say the difference between distress tolerance and stress management, just to draw a line or at least a hazy line between the two, stress management are practices that help us with just the overwhelm of normal day-to-day -day life. People that have too many responsibilities and obligations, one stress management tool would be to remove obligations and responsibilities to prioritize what's most important. But the stress tolerance tools are actually for situations where our emotions become dysregulated. They're very often due to interpersonal situations, not an array of obligations or demands in a work life, but more often it's due to a felt sense of abandonment by other people or not being seen or prioritized by others or um, some kind of attachment wounds. So stress management can be seen as an array of tools to help people make smart choices so that they don't become overwhelmed by an array of responsibilities so that they can focus their attention in a meaningful way and not go into a state of cognitive overload. But people who need, or most of us when we need some form of distress tolerance, it's those very specific interpersonal situations where we become triggered and we become, uh, we, some people, throw tantrums, some people soap, some people just uh, make ever ratcheting protest um, accusations, some people um, develop somatic uh, symptoms, some people, you know, physiological pain, many people keep going back again and again and again, seeking attention from the very one person who's not available or somebody who set a boundary with them. And very often the most common strategy is of course avoidance coping, just avoiding the people we associate with abandonment or disappointment or frustration. Distress tolerance uses mindfulness as a core practice. Marshall Linehan, when she developed distress uh, tolerance tools, clearly was integrating mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness practices into cognitive behavioral therapy and some of the dialectical practices of her therapy. So the first step is to stop whatever we're doing, to breathe and to observe what we're feeling internally, then to reflect on our core values and long-term goals. Now we'll talk again about the core values and long-term goals in another talk, but for the mindfulness part, the way it's traditionally done is we bring attention away from the story we're repeating in our head, uh, the anticipation that interacting with somebody or going back to work or dealing with some difficult situation is going to be overwhelming, the tendency to rehearse, the tendency to build up catastrophizing outcomes. We bring all our attention away from that and we bring it to very real sensations that are going on internally. 
and we bring a kind of non-judgmental, very compassionate attention. So we start, the first foundation of mindfulness is noting how we're breathing and what our body posture is. So that was a very comfortable breath I had. And my body posture right now is kind of relaxed. I'm not leaning forward. I'm not leaning back too far. Um, I can feel my hands on my legs and I can feel my body swiveling somewhat in the chair. And given the fact that I'm giving a talk, I still feel that my respiration isn't too uh, uh, hyperactivated. Once we note how we're breathing in our body posture without any judgment, then we pay attention to the somatic feelings indicating comfort or discomfort. And so right now I notice that my shoulders are still a little tight, but my belly, my abdomen is soft. My body in general feels pretty comfortable. I don't feel any sense of, of I can't relax, I can't stop, I have to fix or address something. So right now, my somatic feelings, what the Buddha called Vedana, the second foundation, is pretty relaxed and comfortable. The mood I'm in is the third foundation, and that's whether the mind is bored, we can't pay attention, or tired, we feel the mind becoming sluggish, or angry, we're just, you know, there's a lot of uh, resistance and aversion towards stimuli, or we're curious, we're really paying attention to something, and so on is happy. So right now I'm not feeling, I'd say I'm feeling a kind of neutral, kind of interested mood in just the topic that we're discussing. And uh, the fourth is how are we going to, how are we framing or commenting about the this experiencing? What store are we adding to the stress? Sometimes, sometimes the story we add is very personal. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to deal with all these difficult interactions? Um, or the sense that we have to do something, a sense of catastrophizing thoughts that everything will get worse unless we write something right now. We send a text message right now. We, we call up or we, uh, or we avoid something that we, if we just simply have an interaction, it can feel like it's going to be the end of the world. So we just know what stories we're adding. And one way to change the story is to simply add before any thought that's present, the simple phrase, I'm aware that I'm having the thought. So if my mind's saying, I'm not going to be okay, we add in front, I'm aware that I'm having the thought, I'm not going to be okay. Or if I'm having the thought, um, I don't want to interact with this person because they tend to become very angry. Instead, I add, I'm aware that I'm having a th the thought that I don't want to meet with this person. And when we do that, while we're doing this kind of it this kind of practice, it allows us to detach 
the sense of identifying with uh, identifying with our identifying, identifying with our thoughts. We're now the observer in us separate from the thought that's present. And the more you can disidentify from a thought, the more you can just note it, put it aside, and then bring your attention back to what your breath's doing, to what you're feeling, to what mood you're in. Or you can change the thought to a skillful thought like, this too shall pass. Once I do deal with the situation, at least all the stress will pass because we actually wind up stressing out more about things we don't deal with. So what are some other classic distress tolerance tools besides mindfulness? Well, uh, support. If you have to go through a difficult interaction, if you have to do something challenging, uh, see if you can meet in a place or do it in a place that feels open and safe rather than enclosed and triggering. The more open the space, the more your right hemisphere will pay attention to the novel background. That your right hemisphere is, is what is the activator of withdrawal and distress uh, much more than the left, which is optimistic. So the more you can essentially uh, imbue the right hemisphere, which is paying attention to the background in your environment with a novel open space, the more difficult conversations become less scary. It regulates the sympathetic nervous response. Um, if you know that you're going to have someone meeting you after you have a difficult interaction, it creates the felt sense of a secure base. And as you know from attachment theory, <laughs> um, those who have a felt sense that there's someone available to help regulate their emotions after a difficult experience experience less distress during the actual event. Children who know there's a parent available to help them regulate what they encounter when they explore their environment are more likely to explore and not be as triggered than children who don't know if their parents are attentive. So if you know you have someone who will be there who you can talk to with about the experience, someone that you can call as a bookend right after you have a difficult conversation, your nervous system is going to have far less of a response. In fact, studies show that if you visualize someone that you really care about that you're going to meet with afterwards, the oxytocin will dampen. It's an analgesic. It will reduce the, 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 set, the felt uh, somatic charge in your body. So uh, we can change uh, the context, not only having it in a place that feels open and safe, but for instance, um, if you have to go to a place, a place of work or uh, a, a place that's triggering, go during a time of day you don't associate with past difficult experiences. So for instance, if you have to go to have a difficult interaction with someone at a specific place that's like a, a, a parent that's not that mobile, go during a time of day that you don't experience as much stress or you don't associate with past 
interactions that are difficult. Distractions. If you have to travel to a difficult neighborhood or do something that's stressful, you can distract yourself with, by paying attention to soothing sensations. So that means wearing very comfortable clothing that feel good on, feels good on your body. Listen for soothing sounds in your environment. Uh, look for different examples of the color green or blue. Pay attention to new stores, trees, birds, cars on your way to and from any difficult interaction. Really study the features. Again, that's going to consume the cingulate's attention of the right brain and it's going to make your emotional response less uh, it'll mutate, it'll, it'll mitigate the response. Priming the mind. Um, uh, there's a lot of great psychology on priming. Uh, one of the great books on attach, adult attachment, Omri Gilead just notes all these clinical studies about how successful priming is as a way to regulate distress, especially interpersonal distress. And the way we do that is by visualizing people associated with reliable attention or people who we feel calm around, or you can prime the mind with images of people you don't know, people uh, associated with courage and confidence. You can prime the mind visualizing times in the past you've dealt with even more overwhelming or difficult interpersonal situations. The mind uh, especially the emotional uh, circuits of the brain can respond to visuals almost near intensely as actual real life experiences. So bringing to mind someone associated with soothing can literally start that process in the body. Um, associating a uh, endeavor, uh, a difficult interaction or task with a higher purpose has been shown to mitigate distress. So if you do have to have a difficult conversation with someone that you've been avoiding, uh, you might want to reflect that this is all part of a greater path to growth, that this talk will uh, help you develop the tools to mitigate so many other possible conflicts in your life, that this is the way you're embodying your Buddhist or spiritual practice, that this is that um, dealing with uh, difficult interactions is part of your core values rather than avoiding and hiding from difficult experiences. In the aftermath of difficult interactions, besides having someone to process it with and to just uh, help us frame the interaction, uh, intense exercise is really valuable. It reduces levels of stress hormones, especially adrenaline and cortisol, which is part of the, of course, chronic stress system in the body. While it stimulates the production of anandamides, the brain's endocannabinoids, it actually induces bliss states. 
So some people think, oh, if I'm really amped up, the last thing I want to do is get on a jogging, you know, a treadmill or uh, do some reps at a gym or even do a vigorous um, hot yoga class. But actually, the, the research always points to the fact that it's regulating, that intense exercise reduces stress, not uh, makes it worse. And finally, paired muscle relaxation. Um, during distressing interactions and during the buildup, of the anticipation of a difficult, conflictual, or painful time in life where we're feeling abandoned, we habitually, during distress, tighten all the muscles in our body, and we send to those muscles action potential, which keeps them ready and and on the verge of the muscles, like constantly on the verge of acting. But because we don't actually act, the the slight clenching and bracing against experience remains in place and we become exhausted and fatigued. So after a difficult interaction, what I like to do besides the um, talking about it with someone or a mindfulness practice is I do a wall sit and I've been doing them now for a few months, so I can do about six minutes of a wall set. That's pretty decent. Uh, some people, it will be closer to two or three minutes, but whatever amount of wall set you can do, given your own body, that is not going to uh, cause you know too much pain. And then once you're done with the wall set, you lie on your back on a yoga mat or a comfortable cushion of some size, Sort and you keep your knees up in the air and your feet flat on the ground, and you just allow your body to shake out. And you, with paired muscle relaxation, you might tense all the muscles first and then relax them, and then you might even shake out the tension as well. So um, that was an overview of why distress tolerance is important, uh, how it's an anecdote for avoidance coping. Uh, the role that mindfulness plays in it. So now what we're going to do is we're going to do a meditation where we practice those tools and we're going to use a difficult interaction which we've been avoiding. And don't do something that's too triggering, but something uh, difficult, awkward, or uh, conversation that you've been putting off or a task or some kind of process, you know, could be anything from uh, dealing with uh, something that you've been putting off or procrastinating, anything that causes a heightened degree of emotional reaction. Let's practice with that. And so first, what we're going to do is we're going to find a really comfortable seated position. And we're going to Really, just take a moment to lift the shoulders and drop them to allow yourself to have a really soft, pliant Buddha belly. Don't try to keep it in. Hold it in. Soften all the muscles on your face, especially the jaw. See if you can drop 
the draw away, the draw so that you're not clenching your teeth and then unfurrow any tightness in your brow. And then drop my hands more comfortably into my lap. And uh, see if the posture you're in is sustainable. With the eyes closed, now bringing the attention into your body and find either the feeling of yourself breathing in and out, the sensations that indicate whether you're inhaling or exhaling. Don't let it be a vague sense. Really find some movement of energy or shift of muscles in your body that indicates when you're breathing in, like the expansion in your chest or your belly, or slight lifting in your shoulders. And then the feeling of exhaling, the chest contracting, the, the belly releasing, the shoulders dropping slightly. Now, some people don't like paying attention to the breath. That's okay. Just pay attention to your body's shape. What are you doing right now? Note from the inside, just the feeling of different parts of your body. Right now, when I'm sitting, can I feel the sensations of contact between my buttocks and the chair, my lower back and the chair back. Can I feel if my body's slightly moving or still? What is the lowest sensation in my body I can discern? Right now I can actually feel my the very tip of my big toe, my right big toe touching the end of my shoe. And then the very topmost sensation I can feel is the hat making contact with the top of my brow. And then just allow this constellation of sensations to be present in your awareness, a constellation of stars, just all. See if you can hold as many different body sensations, as sensations as you can. And for those who just feel claustrophobic, bringing attention to the body, per se, bring attention just to the sounds arising and passing in the environment you find yourself in. So we're just going to stay a couple of minutes in silence with this awareness of 
either the breath or the body sensations or the sounds around you. And every time your thoughts intrude and one thought is provocative enough that it grabs hold of your attention and wrenches it away from just being aware of what's happening in your body and it pulls you into a virtual reality. In your mind, just note whatever thought it was, promise it, you can come back to it when the meditation's over and just relax back into this moment in time, which means don't try to cling or grasp the breath or the body or sounds, just open your awareness to what's happening really in the present moment.
So for the second foundation, just notice what feelings, especially in the front of your body, from your face, neck, throat, I should say, chest and belly, what sensations are letting you know if you feel comfortable right now or uncomfortable? Is your body telling you you're relaxed and in a good place or do you feel this kind of antsy, I need to do something, I can't settle, or even discomfort, like the body feels tense, bracing, tight. So just notice what you're feeling in this moment. Feelings are things other people can't see. Only you know what you're feeling. And uh, we're going to spend a minute or two just noting not just what feeling we're in, but just noting if feelings change, which, by the way, they do. Maybe your feelings will remain constant. Sometimes they can change pretty quickly.
And so for the third foundation, just putting aside the focus on the somatic expressions of comfort, discomfort, just what mood would you say you're in? Does the mind feel bright and uh, energized like a situation where you feel really curious or happy? Or do you feel kind of sluggish and tired, like you can barely pay attention? Or is there actually a state of aversiveness? I don't want to be doing this. When will this practice end? Or is there a state of anxiousness, this jumpy back and forth attention? So see if you can discern what mood you're in. And this is more awareness of our attention itself rather than awareness of the body, per se. So we'll do that for a little while and then come back. Now for a mindfulness of thought, of course, foundation or how we're framing, interpreting. What thoughts have you been adding about your practice, about yourself, about your ability or not to meditate, whatever thought you've been having that's been annotating and at times intruding. And just add the 
phrase, I'm aware I'm having the thought at times. So you don't identify with your thoughts or believe your thoughts are who you are. They're just words activated due to mood congruence that really are not any more indicative of who you are than countless other factors in the mind. So just note whatever you're thinking without identifying. All right, so now what I'd invite you to do is bring to mind an image representing someone you've been avoiding having a conversation with that's important or some task you've been avoiding doing, whether it's applying for a job or working on one's taxes or uh, doing a project or submitting one's writing or you know what you've been avoiding. So bring to mind an image that represents this kind of sensitive part of your life you've been avoiding, you've been putting off, procrastinating, stalling. Whenever you even think of it, it just feels a little, it shifts the state of your body. Maybe you notice that the feelings we became aware of 
in the front of the body, the stomach might tighten, or there might be this slight, sudden clenching, the jaw, or maybe the throat constricts, or maybe the shoulders start to creep up to the ears, or the forehead becomes, starts to tighten the skin, the wrinkles start up there, whatever. Or you might notice that the mood of the mind shifts from being open to suddenly feeling tired, unhappy. Maybe suddenly there's a lot of thoughts about guilt or self-judgment or anger. Just notice the shift from how we might have felt, any small shift from how we might have felt before we brought to mind this image. Don't tell the story of what we're avoiding, just represent it in the mind and just see how your body and moods shift. And then what I'd like you to do first is change the background of this person or this task, wherever you're visualizing it in your mind, to a different setting to see if playing around with the context of where you might have this interaction or where you might engage this task, if you changed the setting, how it might affect the felt reaction to it. So putting aside that and just keep the image of the, the person or task or situation we've been avoiding. And then prime your mind with an additional image of a figure that of someone who you know is interested in how you feel, cares about you, or or the figure of someone you associate with strength and endurance and fortitude and resilience, uh, someone who embodies 
the capability of being of forbearance of dealing with difficult challenges in life. Just priming your mind with something that induces a different state Maybe it's just a subtle shifting. And lastly, just hold the image of the difficult interaction or task we've been avoiding. And I just want you to breathe slower, longer exhalations, just holding whatever it is we've in the past found to be someone who's triggering or evokes a sense of discomfort and just practice being with the image while breathing out really long and slowly engaging your parasympathetic response, telling your body that you're not under any threat. And whenever you feel ready, you can open your eyes.